Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Uh, so, I had a tweet this morning that I thought would be interesting to discuss with you. So I asked people in a poll, what's keeping you from migrating your server-side stuff from Java to Kotlin? And the options I provided were insufficient value, company policy, technical difficulties, or other, and uh, ask people to reply. So 54% currently with 66 votes said insufficient value. And so I wanted to dive into that a little bit more. Um, I, I'm convinced that there's sufficient value in Kotlin to move from Java, but apparently that's not everyone. Well, but you were asking a very specific question. You were saying, why not take your server-side application and move it over? True. They already have a server-side application that's working, presumably, in Java. And it's like, what is the benefit of them? And they have a crew of people who know how to maintain it. So what is the benefit of taking that and rewriting it? That's a good Kotlin? point. I didn't ask, why did you choose Java over Kotlin for a new application? Or totally something? different question. Yeah. 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 So, so I can see that while I might be convinced that Kotlin has sufficient value over Java for, for me to use, uh, is it sufficient value for me to migrate a Java application to? And yeah, I can see that that's yeah, very different. That, that is because that could be a lot of work. There's a lot of debugging. You have something that works and if it goes wrong, you can go in and find the problem. Well, and do you remember long ago I came up with a definition for, um, maybe not a definition, a way to talk about what enterprise software is? Uh, no, <laughs> because you and I have discussed this a lot. It's like, well, what, what is enterprise software? Okay, what is that, what does that I, even I mean? don't recall it, so I would like to hear what is So, your... do you remember DHH's? I'm pretty sure it was DHH, but maybe somebody else invented this, which was uh, move fast and break things, right? I think I'm saying that right. I thought that was Facebook, maybe it was Facebook, <laughs> and they certainly break oh, things. So, maybe it wasn't DHH, maybe it was uh, Mark Zuckerberg that, that, yeah, um, that said think... that. I think that is Facebook. But um, anyway, he, DHH had something too. Yeah. So. so my way to talk about enterprise software related to that is move slowly and break nothing hmm. is I think kind of what captures the difference between enterprise software and, and not enterprise software. See, because my definition after many years of being confused about what it is, is that it's, um, it's trying to figure out what is common among all the things that these companies need so that it can and, and then they have they need to adapt it to their particular needs and so there's you know there's things that are common databases and and uh connecting with the world and ui and all that kind of stuff there's all that there's yeah. all that there and then there's the customization part yeah. and so i think that versus off the sh you know quote unquote off the shelf software which just does what you need it to yeah. do this is like uh you have to take these pieces so a unique trait of, of enterprise software versus non-enterprise software is the 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 need for dramatic customization of <laughs> yeah and the, and the reason that we had all these different libraries so many of them which were um, just shots in the dark. I mean, EJBs were, that was, that was a ivory tower yeah. analysis. And then they pushed it on everybody and yeah. it cost 
billions of dollars yep. of loss over over the years because yeah. somebody thought it was a good idea. Um, yeah, and so it's like, well, how can we find what changes and what stays the same? And then when you customize enterprise software, you're adapting the things that changes. And of course, yep. you never know for sure yeah. what's yeah, so that's why business always, is always changing. Which, business is changing, needs are changing. You know, you can anticipate some needs and say that, oh, well, that's in the common base, yeah. and then here's the stuff that we change. Yeah. But anyway, um, so back to the uh, move slowly and break nothing. Yeah. It's I think that enterprises one of the kind kind of definitions or key traits of enterprises is risk mitigation. And so I think it's very central to a lot of enterprises is try to mitigate as much risk as possible. And so I think where that comes out in software is that change is risk. Change involves risk. And so, so part of the reason why enterprises move very slowly in technology adoption is because it's a risk to make a change. If, it, if, it, if it's working, why change it? And this is why we still have all sorts of mainframes running COBOL. critical, running COBOL with criti very critical systems on them. Is it works? Let's not touch it. Yeah, uh, and well, plus there's the uh, sunk cost fallacy, which I think is a big thing here. It's like because you look at your COBOL program and you go, "We spent millions of dollars developing that, and so changing it and changing it is expensive." And so the idea is that. Well, if we were to rewrite it in a new language, that would cost us the same amount yeah. and have the same impact. But it wouldn't because A, they know what the system is supposed to do, and B, you're using much more hopefully, sophisticated tools. That's right. Hopefully that, better or modern. But we've been that, fooled before. I mean, you remember Ada. Yeah. Ada was supposed to solve all the problems and <laughs> and the... The, the um, Department of Defense got behind it just like it did with COBOL. Yeah. That is the, you know, COBOL would have faded away if the DOD hadn't said, well, this is clearly the good language. And so we'll get behind it and pushed it on yeah. a whole bunch of companies. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have a bad history with, yeah. with the DOD deciding. Well, that, I guess maybe the more meta related point is that we've been burned by being told, oh, this thing is better and you should move to it. And so we've been burned before, so that's made us even more risk averse. We've been burned changes. many times. Many times. I mean, there was, and, and it's, you know, you get a sense of the smell of this thing. This is why I'm skeptical of the low code, you know, thing is because it, 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 well, I mean, on one side it's like, sure, a system that allows you to put together um, an application with less effort, I'm all for that. Yeah. But when the marketing people get excited about it, it just stinks. That's to the high red heaven. flag. Is it is the red with flag. any technology? When the marketing people get excited about it, oh man, run away. Uh, kinda. It's just it. I, let's just say it's worrisome. You know, yeah. I mean, the last time I really saw it was the uh, the AI revolution in the '90s, which yeah. nobody remembers because it wasn't. Yeah, it's and <laughs> SOA, man, uh, marketing got so excited to have that term SOA. You need your SOA. Oh, and you're so oh, uh, well. And then they also had um, 
Yeah, they, they RA. We got excited about RAs. Well, and back then, client server was a big thing. You know, yeah. and it's like that was. It's weird. The marketing really likes to have like a term. It's like they find that term, HTML5, Web 2.0. So, uh, like, it's a package. It says we have this thing. You want it. And there's so much value you need to rewrite into this thing. And that is all packaged in that that term. Yeah. And and I've definitely seen this sentiment in sentiment in terms of Kotlin, where people are like, Oh, you keep trying to tell me Kotlin's better, but I just don't trust you because I've been burned by this before with Scala or with uh, you know, with whatever, right? They've they've been burned, been told that XML. Oh, XML <laughs> that there's this silver bullet that if they just change everything and adopt this new thing, life will be so much better. And so I definitely see a lot of reluctance. So, so which think, we can, I mean, we've been burned, so we can only have compassion for that right. reluctance. Yeah, you know, it makes it makes sense. We should be skeptical because there are people out there who. Want to take your money and not give you the value that they promised? Yeah, you know that's yeah. that's a common thing, and um, yeah, and the only way to to really understand it is, yeah, I mean, is there a better way? Because it's like, well, it's what Jeremy and I are going to do in the next few days. We're having this rest retreat, and uh, we're going to delve in and analyze it and see, you know what is this thing that everybody's been raving about and programmers are raving about it. So it's like, well, that's true. And people that I trust. So I'm going, well, there's something in there. I just, it's more, does it meet my needs? And I guess that's the thing. It's we, we have a tool that's going to meet everybody's needs. It's universally great. You should buy it. Yeah. Versus understanding that, well, your needs are different than, others needs and That's maybe true. maybe rust did i mean i just read an article comparing rust and go and this guy was a go fan huh. but he was i mean i think he was you know looking at rust seriously yeah and but in the end he he, he he's still biased towards go huh. and but maybe he's right you know because it's for easier for you know for a needs. bunch of things whereas with rust maybe like you're you're creating a particular kind of thing and you go well that's what we want because of performance right um yeah yeah i guess that's where it's hard is uh value is in the eye of the beholder (laughs) within the needs of the need your needs define what brings you value and so it can be different for everyone depending on what they're building, what their team makeup is like, what their, you know, there's probably so many factors. We're misusing the term marketing too, because marketing is actually figuring out what the customer needs. And, and it's gotten polluted to the point where it's basically, well, and even a good salesperson is someone who figures out <laughs> what his customer needs and whether it's a good fit and doesn't just push whatever product that they have. Yeah. So, but that's all gotten biased in the, interests of money <laughs> yeah pretty yeah. much yeah pretty much so it's we are seeing a lot of server-side kotlin adoption so we do see that but can you tell if it's new adoption or trans translating existing apps it's a good question i don't know how much is new versus 
greenfield versus brownfield mm-hmm. <laughs> is the new <laughs> is that the term i don't know now? if it's a new terminology but but it's i've been hearing that terminology a oh, lot lately okay. so you obviously know greenfield but sure. now brownfield is the the taking some old thing and uh, okay. and making it modern or whatever and so so uh yeah so so i don't know what percentage of the mm-hmm. kotlin server-side adoption is coming via green or brown mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to know yeah to me that's that's probably the most critical <laughs> yeah. question to ask maybe in your next poll yeah. you yeah. can find that out uh so on on kotlin specifically it's interesting to try to match needs and values with it specifically so i'm thinking about one of the values of kotlin is the the handling of nulls uh and I I can see that that's a huge value. Oh, you won't ever get a null pointer exception again. But if you're in a brownfield application moving from Java to Kotlin, you don't immediately get that value. You actually have to rewrite all of your code and identify the things that could be null and make those those things explicit. I mean, and you so don't I could see have that. to. You can you can see every time I cross the boundary between Kotlin and Java. I know that what I'm going to get is nullable. Um, <laughs> so everything is nullable, or um, is... yeah, I mean, w- as long as you're staying within yeah. the Kotlin world, you can say. But to okay, realize, to like actually gain that value, you actually have to write the Kotlin code that that then handles the the potentially null um, places. And so I can see that very different between a, that value is is applied very differently between green and brownfield. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's there's maybe other things of Kotlin, other values of Kotlin that you would get without without as much work or. or... Well, when our our friend Bill did an experiment where he created a Kotlin module for a large Java project, and he um, still benefited greatly from the non nullability of what he did. It's just that when you hit the boundaries, when you're calling in and out. Yeah. to the rest of the Java thing, you have to do a little bit of extra work to yeah. say, okay, this is nullable, what do I do? Right. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the, um, I mean, the fact that they're using null for two different purposes, which it took me a while to get clear on that. Yeah. Because it's all, oh, it's all about the non-nullability. And then within the Kotlin libraries, they will themselves return a null. Yeah. And you're going, wait, well, I thought we went to a lot of trouble. Explicit nullability is what we should call it. Yeah. Um, and that's really more of a, and this was actually one of my questions, is that a variation of a monad? Oh. Because what you're doing, so, so if we look at a monad as a package of information that travels from one function to another so that we can chain function calls, then this kind of fits that because when you call uh, a function in Kotlin that can explicitly return null, you're saying, well, I can either get information or I can get nothing. I can, you know, something failed, something didn't work out, or that thing isn't in your map or whatever. It's like, and it's uh, it's really a message, and when you take the two together, it's basically an either. Yeah. So, um, is that 
I mean, it's certainly monadic thinking, I would say, but could you even call that a monad? Uh, oh, God. Um, I like the segue into monads. Could you call that a monad? So I get a little mathy when we talk about could you call it a monad? Okay, so before, I, <laughs> before we let you get mathy, let me explain the conclusion that I've come to yeah. about what a monad is. And the problem with the explanations that I've seen is precisely the mathiness. Yeah. And so what I'm looking at is what's our, you know, what's our, as an actor would say, what's my motivation? Yeah. Why is, uh, why are we trying to do this thing? And the answer, I believe, is primarily we want to chain functions together or compose them. I think, you know, it's kind of a variation of the same thing. We want to chain these functions together. Now, if we do it the old way, every function we call, we have to go, oh, what's the result of that? What am I going to do with it? And we have a whole bunch of code around it. And we don't have this nice composition where I can say A calls B calls C and the result of all of that we do something with. We have to intercede. We, yeah, we have to intercede after each function call. I mean, this is the way basically go does it it says okay i'll return kind of a either a result or an error condition yeah. in a in a single package so that's the goal and to achieve that instead of just returning a result we have to return a package of information which is passed on and then when you get mathy it's like well what is you know what are the rules for that package of information yeah. But then, but but starting at that point just confuses the heck out of everybody. Yeah. Because they're going, I, I don't understand. I, I don't even understand why we're trying to do this thing. Yeah. And if you do, if you look at it from the standpoint of, well, we're trying to do it so that we can chain operations. Chain operations, which is really an essential part of functional programming, is yeah. composition. We want to be able to compose yeah. functions together. And the only thing that doesn't fit that model is the monad when you are, you know, you're trying to make everything invariant and then you have the monad that changes things, you yeah. know, that connects to the outside world or is the clock or something like that. Yeah. So what's wrong with that discussion? Is that um, at least? Yeah, I think that, I think it's good. I think, I think you are very right to identify that monads are, a way to deal with chaining of, of functions or operations where you need, you need something other than just the value right. because it, with, with just functions, if you have a function that returns a value and then you want to chain that to uh, that value to another function that then takes in that value and returns a new value, that's all great until that value needs some more information about it. Some, mm -hmm. some, something beyond just the value, right? Just the pure value. So in the case of, of error handling, you want to know the, the other information you want to know is did this succeed or, or did this fail? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you don't just return the value like this succeeded, but instead you, you return something that says, did this succeed or did this 
fail. And if it succeeded, here's the value. Package of information. Package of information. Yep. Mm -hmm. Then now all of a sudden your function that you want to chain that to needs to take the, the, that, that thing that holds the information about did this succeed or did this fail and know how to extract the value out of it or know how in the case of failure to, to, to move on. Which and makes so, sense to me when I put it in the context of the problem that we're trying to solve. But when you start with that and go, oh, well, it's a monoid in the category of endofunctors. And, you know, it's like, I don't know why we're doing that. But if, but if you look at it with... If we start with this explanation, then you say, oh, and each function has to have a way to unpack it and then pass its own package of information along. Yep. Okay, so I, I, I get that now. So to take this example further of air handling, all of a sudden then the, ch the functions that you want to chain on, your second, third, whatever functions, if we don't have monads, they would have to take as a parameter the 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 thing i don't want to call it a box or a burrito or whatever but they need to take the thing with more information and then inside of that function be like okay here here's what i need to do if it's a success here's what i need to do with it if it's a failure and it's good that you brought up go because go has the like air tuple returns uh, which is just a convention just a convention but that requires the the, if you were to pass that result to a function, you would, in your function, then have to look, oh, is this a success or a, a failure, and then decide what you want to do. And I don't know, I mean, I haven't seen any examples of people doing that. I think mostly it's just call the function, check the result. Yeah. So, uh, so what if we had a way to chain operations together that inherently knew... Uh, what to do if it gets a thing with more information and and could then uh, provide a way to continue the chaining to allow to enable chaining as uh, with as much chaining as you want to do mm -hmm. um, and so yeah I think that that's that is a good way to look at monads what I don't know is is that the only way to look at monads i think maybe some some deeper functional programming language experts may say that's only one one aspect to monads um but when you look or maybe at not, the, I'm not sure. the zeo library it says okay we're going to handle errors and we're gonna you can attach environment you can attach time you can attach these other things to it and we'll pass all those things through as uh you know, monad calls so you can change chain your calls together, and yeah. it still seems to fit. Yeah. And um, and and it also because when people start talking about burritos, it's like I don't know why would they choose that. Whereas if they'd simply said a package of information, a package of information, that would have been. Because why do you need to have the extra abstraction of a burrito? That's right. Somebody's being cute. Yeah. I, I think the I'm not totally sure if monads only involve the package of information or if that is just a very common way common thing that we use them for because there's 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 so many different places where monads get used and but but I think ultimately the chainability is uh, is central and and uh, necessary because I don't think you would ever use monads if you never wanted to do any chaining if you if you for some reason a thing only did one thing and you didn't need to do any chaining of operations i don't think there's any reason for monads no i can't see that um 
but um yeah uh the chaining seems to be and and i would say well it's everything that's necessary to make that chaining happen but the easiest way to explain it to somebody at the beginning is to say we want to pass this package of information then you get into it and you go well it'd be nice if each function had a consistent way to unpackage and then repackage that information so that it wouldn't be as much work for the programmer to do it and they wouldn't have to think about as much yeah. stuff and then you get into well what would that look like mathematically and then yeah. and then you get mathy about it yeah. yeah we'll get mathy about it in a minute but um okay. i i th as far as i know monads always always do have a package or like something beyond just the pure value mm -hmm. i think i think I, I haven't seen a use of monads where that's not true, but but so what's what I find interesting with monads is that some some really smart people kind of solve this problem of of chaining. They saw this problem of what's called like state monads. They saw this problem of chaining optional things, chaining uh, success um, or failure things together. They saw a bunch of different things, and they said. Oh, there's there is there is an abstract uh, core idea that can that can accomplish all of those different things, and with as with I think in well, all functional programming and and in math, when we, when we find those abstractions, those abstractions obey mathematical laws so that so that we we know when we use it for this thing we can be guaranteed that this is this is the behavior that we're going to get from from that abstraction um and so that's where it gets mathy is that a, a monad technically is just something that implements uh three different algebraic laws and so so Technically, that abstraction is just defined by the mathematical laws that it that it abides by. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't even think about the abstract mathematical laws. I use monads for all sorts of things, and it's it's like the difference between physics and engineering. It's like, well, you know, we figured out all these things in physics. And in engineering, it's, you know, I just want to weld the beams together and make sure that they're going to stay together. I don't need to, you know, know the yeah. underlying physics of this thing. Of welding, yeah. You know, just, you know, make sure the beam is big enough, yeah. et cetera. And it's like... And you know that that weld will hold <laughs> mm -hmm. um, based on, on you your expectations of how you have ways to test it but yeah, yeah but knowing uh at the atomic level how the weld actually happens is not not necessary mm -mm. it's that you can expect a particular result you can expect a a, a way for it to behave so, yeah somebody did those equations once and now we're going to rely on them yeah exactly right and so somebody found somebody figured mm -hmm. it out and now we can just use it and not have to understand the the reason why the abstraction works. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't. It's probably not useful to talk about the actual like algebraic laws of monads, and and I always have a hard time remembering them off the top of my head. Um, 
But but I think the important point is that there are laws that they abide by, which allow us to expect a particular behavior from things that are that are monads. Yeah, it, it it helps us engineer how we're going to chain these functions together, how we're going to compose them. That's right. And exactly. That's, that's what we need to to get to. But um, but now I understand why it's been so confusing for so long. Is because people the mathy people came first and that's how they explained it yeah not and well and and remember at the very beginning of us talking about monads you you asked um like something around is this a monad and and i think that there's there's two different ways that you can go with that conversation but the math person in me wants to say the way that we prove that something is a monad is does it does it fulfill the laws, the mathematical algebraic laws of monads? And, and that's how we know if it's a monad. And the engineer in me says, okay, if our goal is to chain, is to, to compose functions, and this thing allows us to compose functions, then at least it's monad, monad-ish. Yeah. You know, it, it's got the basic ideas in there, which is that instead of just returning a result, you're returning a package of information, which in this case includes the result, and then this null to tell you that there wasn't a result or yeah. not. Yeah. And so. And and the ability for something to know uh, what to do with that package and make a decision about what it returns, mm-hmm. because in in back to your question of is the um, is returning a null or a value, is that monadic? And not I, by itself. I would say no because well, we could you know we could talk about it on the math side and why it's not. Mm-hmm. But I think on the the monadish side, is mm-hmm. this even mod- not monadic but monadish? Mm-hmm. Then I would say no because the so the way that we usually convey convey the package of information is through the type system, and in the case of, of your example of returning a null or a value, your type system is not actually conveying that information. Mm. The return, the return, the return type that you are returning does not convey that your two possible things are, are null or a value. Well, plus there's no mechanism built into the, well, actually that, that may not be true. A lot of the functions may check for and handle nulls and, and pass that along. So it's who, who needs to check that and, and decide what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the case of monads, my code doesn't have to check the, the, it doesn't have to check the package information. So my function that I'm operating on, my second operation on, on this package of information doesn't have to look at the package information to decide what to do. And I think that's part of the difference with monads is that. So it's wired into each function to say, oh, well, this failed. I'll just pass it along. For example. For example. Yeah. For example. I mean, lots yeah. of other possibilities. Yeah. But, but. Uh, so in the case of, of a function that returns a null or a result, and let's say you even have Kotlin and that can be expressed in the type system, when you call a function that returns that, you need to, to take, to do something with that, you need to actually have like a if and say, 
if this was null, then do this. If this wasn't null, then get the value and do this. Mm -hmm. And when things become monadish in this use case mm -hmm. is when I don't have to do that checking. Right. I just I just say, okay, take take the output of that function and give it to this function. And I don't have to do I don't have to do the checking about I don't have to look at the package information. You just do what you want to do and the rest of it's automated. Right. Yeah. And and so the one of the ways to do this is with flat map. Mm -hmm. So I provide my second operation. So I take a, uh, something that has that package information and I call flat map on it and give it a function. And when I give it that function, that function, again, doesn't have to look at the package information. Mm -hmm. But that's a special flat map, right? That's not just any flat map. It is a, so, so the, the flat like map. You overload it, right? Uh, so, well, so on the case of an option, mm -hmm. option has a flat map function. Right. And so, so when I call flat map on an option, mm -hmm. that is where, that is where the monad decides, oh, if, if it was none, then I'm just going to return none. If, if it was some, if it had a value, then I'm going to apply the function that you gave me to that value, which can then, that function needs to return uh, an option as well so each monad has its own well for example flat map it has its own s defined set of operations to perform on itself and the i don't know user of this goes i'm going to assume you have for example a flat map and i'm just going to call it and you're going to do you know it's well actually it's kind of polymorphic right because it, it works with all these different types. As long as they have a flat map, I'm just going to call your flat map. And so different different languages and technologies have implemented this differently. Sure. Uh, one way to implement it is to have a, a use inheritance to say, okay, if I inherit essentially from, from Monad, then I get a flat map. Mm -hmm. And so then you can be sure that if you are dealing with something that inherits from monad, that it's monadic and you can call flat map on it. That's one way to do it. Of course, it. you have to then override the flat map to do the appropriate thing for your Maybe or maybe not, model. but yeah. Sure, yeah. the usual. Yeah, it, monad is a trade. It doesn't have an implementation by mm -hmm. default. So a list uh, would have a different implementation than an option mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So... So that's one way to do it. The Scala standard library doesn't do it this way. The Scala standard library says if something has a flat map function on it, just a function called flat map, uh, then we're going to consider it a monad. Oh, and so, I see. so what's, what's interesting is if you look, so in the Scala standard library, there is no monad sure. trait. Uh, there are a lot of things that have a flat map on them. And so by convention, by convention is how, how you know that things are. And that's monad. all it needs is a flat map. Uh, it, I, I think it needs a flat map and a filter. Well, so no, okay. Filter would be different. So there, so where this actually matters is two places in Scala standard library. One is that in the documentation, it will say this is monadic. And so it's kind of like just conveying information to the user like this is monadic. And then then the other place where it gets used is that um, chaining these monads together 
is um, is nesting, right? So if I so if I have something that returns a monadic value, and then I want to perform another operation on it with a flat map, and then another one on that value, and then another one, another one, I'm just doing this very deep nesting in my code, and it it it's kind of cumbersome and doesn't look very nice, and so. As far as I know, Haskell, but maybe it came before Haskell, there was a a language syntax that knew how to make make dealing with monads look imperative instead of so making it look you you actually structure your code like first I do this, then I do this, then I do this, then I do this. Yep. So make it look imperative. I do mm. this and, and and on different lines instead of mm. nesting. Mm. And uh, in Haskell, it's called do notation. And so in Scala, they they created their own do notation thing that knows how to handle monads. And so when you are um, when you are are using the do notation, which is with a four uh, the, the four syntax in, in Scala, to get that imperative style of code, which reads and looks a whole lot nicer. In order for you, the Scala compiler enforces that in order for you to, to use something in that way, in that do notation style, it has to have a flat map method and it has to have a map method. Um, and the reason why it has to have a map method is because when you get to the last statement in do notation, you don't call flat map, you call map. And so it's really just the syntactic sugar around the chaining through flat map and map mm -hmm. um, to make your code look imperative. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, because a lot of, I mean, like even Java 8 kind of took on that, um, do this dot, and then on the next line, dot, do the next thing, dot, do the next thing, which I think originated from functional programming that that style of chaining oh, things yeah. together. So, so you can't do that with, with monads. You can't do that style of chaining with monads because the way that you chain monads is through flat map. And so that's where that's why you get into the the nesting mm -hmm. with monads is that you're not you're not calling um, you're you're calling something that takes a function as a parameter, and so that's why you end up nesting deeper and deeper and deeper by default. Whereas in in J the Java style that you're talking about, you're not calling things that take functions. You're you're just calling um, methods on on a thing, and so you can do chaining and that's that would just be like like function chaining basically without monads but you could i mean it seems like if you're if each one of those pa returns you know a package of information then the next one could accept that and do something useful with it maybe not as nicely as what you're talking about but it still could yeah, could you have syntax that would give you like the dot notation uh, across monads? Um, not with our current languages that I've seen, because because the way that you the way that you operate on a monad is by by calling flat map with a function that's going to do that do that next operation. Uh, yeah, which I I see makes sense because you're wanting to have all of that internal scaffolding that you don't have to reproduce for each function. That's right. Right. So that that makes sense. But now I'm also intrigued by this idea of of being able to well and see what what the the null versus 
uh, value thing does in Kotlin, which I, you know, is a compromise for sure, because they could have, I mean, they knew about monads, they could have gone full monad. Yeah, they um, could have gone full monad. Full monad, and, but they chose not to for, you know, the same reason that, you know, C++ is backwards compatible with C. I think they thought it was going to be too big of a, of a shift. Yeah. But it does allow you to chain things together, and then each one can say, "Oh, if it's null, pass it on." Yeah. If it's if it's not, you know, and let somebody else deal with it, or maybe even yeah. ha include, uh, say, an exception that gets thrown, or or you know, some kind of error condition. Yeah. So there, I've seen some discussion on Twitter around the Elvis operator, and how in JavaScript and in Kotlin and other languages too, I'm sure, it was really just used for nullability and being able to walk through a chain of, of nullable things. Mm -hmm. But that is one specific place that you would want to do chainability. And one of the, the discussions that I saw was saying it would have been a whole lot more interesting if they had, had done that, enabled that syntax for anything that can be chained basically through monads instead of just for nullable things. And I thought that was interesting was, I think what they would eventually have gotten to is something like do notation, uh, right. For, for doing that chaining. But, mm -hmm. but it was interesting that, that JavaScript and Kotlin only, only looked at that problem, chainability for nullable things. And they didn't look at, Oh, we might want to chain, asynchronous operations in the same way, or we might want to chain um, other things, you know, and other monadic things uh, in the same way. And how can we, how can we generalize this instead of making it specific? The nice thing about making it specific to just nullability is that it constrains the problem and makes it a lot easier to learn and a lot simpler. And to implement with the compiler and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And whereas do notation, much more powerful of a imperative syntax for for doing chaining of things because you can do it with anything with a flat map basically mm -hmm. but at the same time it because it's so general it is more confusing i remember when you and i were first learning monads we we were confused well you were learning by... monads i was confused about them for way longer <laughs> but i remember we were specifically looking at chaining uh scala futures mm. in with using the the do notation and we're confused about uh, about something related to that and so i think that in some ways the generalness of do notation and and monadic operations in scala makes it harder to learn and more oh, confusing. Absolutely. It increases the surface area. This is definitely, I mean, now that I, it's starting to come together for me, I can see exactly why it's so much more confusing and why you don't want to drop all of that stuff on somebody right away, yeah. which is pretty much what everybody does. Yeah. And they try and mitigate it by going, well, it's a burrito, but that just confuses the situation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I've said a number of times around monads is I really think people should use monads for years before they try to understand what they actually are. Because I fell into the trap of, ooh, monads are so cool and everybody's talking about monads. I want to understand what they are. And it really kind of threw me off from what I, I think needed to focus on at the time was just use monads and 
and learn the abstraction, the generalized abstraction later. Yeah, well, I mean, that's essentially what I'm saying with start with the motivation. It's like, how does this help me? Yeah. B before any of that other stuff, if I can, if I can see it mechanically working, yeah. then that's uh, much more motivating. Yeah. But it's, well, I mean, I don't know if, I feel like you and I came up with the idea of a cur the curse of the monad, but I, I no, like that was Doug, Doug Crawford was the first that was one. Doug Crawford, and this was okay. like, he said this like 10 years ago or oh, something sure. like that was when he coined that okay. the curse of the monad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, right, you should say what the curse of the monad is. Well, as soon as you understand what monads are, you become unable to explain them to anyone else. Yeah. And we've been fighting that curse for going on, what, five, seven years now or something like that. We're going to overcome it. Oh, I'm sure everyone is confused by monads that's listening right now. But uh -huh. um, because the curse is so far... I feel like we've made some progress here, though. We because, have. well, but at least, I don't know, you, I could be just becoming cursed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I could just be going, oh, I'm starting to see it now. That's oh, the clarity is fading away. I can't explain anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what now makes sense to you makes sense to no one else. No, but, but I feel like, I mean, that's my... That's kind of my thing is remembering what it feels like to not understand something. So I think I might be able to hold on to this long enough to, yeah, to, it's still a challenge. It's yeah. not like I've cracked it, but I feel like this idea, this, some of these ideas that we've talked about here is. So John DeGoes had a, a good kind of explanation of monads, which, which is something we've talked about already, but I want to reiterate uh, he said, I should have had the tweet ready, but he said something along the lines of like monads, what they're really about is allowing you to program imperatively in functional programming. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. without the ability to do with, without the existence of monads in functional programming, there just is no way to like have something that looks imperative. So it's not really imperative because it's functions and, and, the functions are just composed and chained, but you can make it look imperative with monads. And monads are the only way to, at least, actually, I think there is another way that people have been talking about, but I forget what it's called. But anyways, it's the primary way that we've discovered to make functional stuff look imperative. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that helps at all, but. Well, it, it fits in with, the model that I've been creating in my head, whether it helps um, someone trying to understand monads from scratch yeah. is another question. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think, yeah, I think, and I'll, it's one of those things where um, I took a screenwriting class once and the teacher was saying, so what you want to do is set it up so that when you hit this certain point in the story, in the you know, reader or watcher's brain, it's like dominoes falling. It's like, oh, that means this, and that means this, and that means this. And I can sort of, I can sort of feel that happening, but I'm also trying to hang on to, yeah, but if you didn't understand anything about this, how would you gain entry? And I think the error condition is probably the most compelling yeah. one, because, you, you know, you've seen other approaches to try and report handle errors. Yeah. And I, I, um, 
just kind of an aside, uh, one of the Kotlin designers had a nice blog post in the last month or two, and they were talking about exceptions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know which one yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah and he made some very clear distinctions about here's where, because when they were introduced into C++, I was on the committee then, and I was trying to figure out what is this? You know, this doesn't look anything like what I'm used yeah. to looking at. And um, and it was supposed to handle all. It was yeah. it was the unified way of reporting errors yeah. and and the goal was ultimately to be able to recover from errors. Yeah. And I think what this blog post uh, pointed out was there are such things as recoverable errors, but they're really rare. And then everything else is really just reporting and the exception, using an exception whose primary goal was recovery to do everything, uh, well, it was a mistake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Java took the mistake and ran with it. And, yeah. and uh, now Kotlin did too. Well, Which Kotlin we're gonna talk about with uh, to... Cedric next week. Oh, yes. So that's one of his topics. He wants to revisit some things we talked about with Kotlin. Yeah. And uh, and the exceptions is one of them. So there'll be more well, about that. And they didn't, I wouldn't, you know, I would kind of guess they would have probably, if they were able to start from scratch, they would have narrowed them down to be used for uh, things that you could actually recover from and then do something else for everything else. Yeah. But they had to, you know, they're working on the JVM, so they had to... Yeah deal with that. what java does yeah so but they don't have checked exceptions so yeah there there are no checked exceptions added in kotlin yeah and they don't respect checked exceptions huh. from um, java so interesting there is a change there so I, this is similar to a conversation that i had with uh with some folks who were building a ui framework and this ui framework um it was using mutation, like hidden mutation, to chain chain things together. And when I when I saw it, I was like, oh man, like like I wish they would have used monads for this instead because monads are just such a great Is this way Elm? to chain. No, um, some other one. I don't want to <laughs> disclose because, okay. but um, because I'm going to talk dirty about about okay. uh, them and air. Um, but uh, so so I I talked to the engineer, some of the engineers, and I was like, I was like, why didn't you all use monads for this instead? It would it, it monads fit this so much better. And they said, well, monads are too complex, and uh, no one would understand it, and all that. And I've wondered if. That attitude towards monads, which yes, monads, they are like, as we've experienced, like it's not the easiest subject, but I wonder if the attitude towards monads of, oh, nobody can learn it and they're too hard has actually propagated using inferior design choices uh, and kept people from, from something that they really should do like kept people from the way that they should be doing things the 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 better way and i know this is always hard and there's you know it's hard to know always know when you should go with the better way or not but 
with monads, I'm always like, God, we, we should just like get over this monads are hard thing and just use monads where we should use monads. And where it relates back to your previous conversation, it's like, God, I wish Kotlin would use monads for their return types because it's just is so much better of a way. And yeah, people are going to have to learn monads and that's going to be hard. But wouldn't we rather them learn the, the right, the better way to do this than, than propagating the, the wrong way, the exceptions and that messiness? Mm. Well, I can't say I've ever seen an article which, like, says, here, use, yeah, I mean, you, because you keep saying, you go, people should just use monads. Well, I haven't really seen an article that says, here we are using monads, see how easy it is. Don't see that a lot. And I think that's the direction that it needs to be taken from. But I have a, do you know of any languages that are being developed that are using monads as first class, you know, integrated? Uh, Elm is the, is one of the most recent ones. Um, and then I think that but they don't talk about monads. And it's true. They, they don't really talk about monads, but, but yeah, it definitely is. And there is, I mean, my under from what I studied of Elm, there was like, well, we, we do all this stuff, but the mutation happens in this hidden place. And it confused me. I, I yeah. still was, but I assume that's, that's the monad. It's all monads. Okay. Uh, it's been a while since I've done Elm, but I remember they had like this pipe operator thing and the pipe operator, I think was like their flat map essentially oh. saying like, take the results of this thing and pass it on to this other thing. Uh -huh. um, yeah, they do. So I think that the pipe operator is essentially their flat map, but it's been a while. It's but been that, a few years since that was pretty straightforward to look at. Right. And so what was interesting is I think you're right. They didn't actually talk about that as no, being, they were very careful or, never to use yeah. the word monad. Yeah. Um, other languages, uh, all the like Haskell derivations, of course, are all because based Elm on was basically monads. a copy of Haskell. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I think anything that kind of has its roots in Haskell is going to be monad, monad kind of first. Mm. Um, and then I, th uh, I've I've started to do some exploration into Unison, which is i'm so enamored by unison and we should do an episode with too. with uh with them but um but i th i think that what a lot of what they're doing is based on monads but but um i haven't done a, enough with unison to kind of know how foundational that concept is mm -hmm. so. and is that i thought that that was still like being developed oh, it's yeah, not it's, it's like very, ready for prime time it's very early days for okay. unison but yeah we should do an episode on unison and get get um runar mm. um one of those guys from Unison on because I'm, I think Unison is the most uh, innovative thing to happen in programming languages in a really long time. So, mm -hmm. but anyways, um, what else on monads are we? What's we should we should leave listeners with some monadic advice or something like like what do you like people people I think are interested in monads mm -hmm. i don't know my advice is use them just use them like when i started doing scala i, I was, don't know what that means though just use them well i guess like in the case of kotlin monads are not really not used very often and so but there are i mean 
there's some articles showing here's what a monad would oh, look for sure. like. And, and there's like, Arrow, which is the functional right, that's library for and that, Kotlin. that's monadic? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. okay. Um, so you certainly can use monads in, in Kotlin, but it's not kind of the, the default It's not a first path. class. It's, it's not in the core mm -hmm. language and standard library like it is in Scala. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, if I, so use monads uh, like... A lot of people aren't really in a place where they can, and so are in a technology set where they can. So that's not good advice. Um, I don't know. Mm. We <laughs> we'll keep have. we'll keep trying to explain monads. Yeah. Whether or not people can use them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's been an interesting challenge, but I'm starting to see it. Yeah. Well, and I think once you once you see that. With functional programming, if you want to program in an imperative style, you really have no other option. Mm. And then I think when you get to like a, the highest level of enlightenment, you see mathematically why the laws are required to enable that. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, All right. That was fun. Thanks yeah. for listening.